Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning that you provide us your word that we can uh, read and provide us the story uh, of this man whom, uh, who, who encounters your word uh, as he is heading back home. Uh, and for the picture that this gives us of how, uh, how, your, how the borders uh, of, of your kingdom are continually expanding and growing. So, Lord, we, uh, we pray for our time as we consider this story, as we consider this passage, uh, that you would teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been uh, looking at the book of Acts, and the, the main question for my wanting to start us in the book of Acts as I started here as your pastor was trying to help us to think through what does it look like for the church to be a church in a particular location where God has it. And, uh, and I can't think of very many places better than to go than the book of Acts where we begin to see the church uh, in its birth and the priorities that it begins to inhabit and the priorities that it begins to take. Uh, and so what we've been seeing over the course of our time in Acts is how the church grew, how the spirit was at work, the role of the word, the role of prayer, uh, and how the, 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 the borders of the people who are coming in begins to expand and grow and grow and grow. And really the image that I have in my mind when I think about this is that, you know, you think of like a, a, a concentric circles. So you have circles that have one point at the center and then they begin to spread out and out and out. Or maybe, you know, you throw a pebble in a body of water and the ripples that begin to form out. And that that is in effect what's happening. That, 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 uh, that pebble being thrown in the water is the pebble of, of Jesus's resurrection and his commission to the disciples. And then you've got Pentecost and then you've got all these people being saved. And then you've got Samaritans. And now we come to uh, this Ethiopian eunuch. And, uh, and that, those ripples are going to continue. We're gonna, this is our last sermon in Acts for a while. Uh, we're going to go into a series on prayer in a few weeks. Uh, but, but, you know, the ripples will continue past Acts 8. Um, and so what we see is these, these, the expansion of the gospel, the expansion is the borders of who is coming into the kingdom of God continue to grow. Now, the, uh, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at who is included in this, in this expansion of the gospel. Uh, we're going to look at how they're included, uh, and then we're going to see why it's important. So who is included, how are they included, and why is it important? Those are our three questions. So we're introduced to Philip again. And I think there's a slide with a map. Uh, so you can kind of geographically uh, situate yourselves on where we are. So, so Philip had gone up to Samaria. Uh, and he's up in the area known as Sebastian. And then he's somehow, he's transported down somewhere in that area that's circled in red. And that is where he meets the Ethiopian eunuch. The reason that he meets the Ethiopian eunuch right there is because there was a highway that goes along that region of the ancient world. It was known as the coastal highway that went along the coast. And so, and so that would have been the way that the Ethiopian eunuch would have been heading back to Africa. Uh, that would have been the, the five uh, or the 805, whatever you, uh, or if you're on the East Coast, it would have been the 95. Um, and, so, and so he's on the interstate heading back home. Uh, and that's where Philip meets him. Now, this is really uh, the, a very unlikely person 
that Philip is meeting, and he's meeting him in a very unlikely place. And I want you to, this is not a perfect parallel, but imagine like, you know, you're at the rest stop off the interstate, and you're having this like gospel transformative moment, okay? It's, it's not the place, the desert is not the place where you would immediately think that this kind of thing happens. Um, so you have this unlikely person in this unlikely place. Now, let's unpack who this man is, because as we unpack this individual, uh, we begin to see a lot of themes that, that resonate are important for us in our day and age. Uh, so, so this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, was uh, a rich, powerful, politically powerful, black government official in Africa who, who had uh, questions of his sexual identity. That's who this guy is. Um, and so, and so now understand that in the ancient world, there wasn't the, the kind of prejudice against somebody because, surely because of the color of their skin. While it existed, it wasn't a dominant theme like it is in our day and age, especially in our country. But even though it's not a dominant theme back then, it still resonates deeply for us today that the first person outside of the circle of Jews and Samaritans who are related to each other, because uh, Samaritans were part Jewish, uh, the first story that we're told in the book of Acts is somebody that comes in to know Jesus is the story of an African is really significant for us in our conception of who is included in the gospel, who is brought into the kingdom of God. Um, now, why is this an unlikely person? He's, it's an unlikely person partly because of, of who he is in his society. So, so he was, in effect, the, he was the treasurer, right? He's the chief financial officer of the kingdom of the Ethiopians. Now, th this kingdom, the, it would be, we think, the Nubian kingdom. Uh, so this would be roughly modern-day Sudan, South Sudan, and uh, Ethiopia. And if your geography of Africa is as poor as mine is, then uh, think of Egypt. Egypt is the very northeast corner of the continent of Africa. Directly below that are Sudan, South Sudan, and Ethiopia. And that's the region that the Ethiopian kingdom, or the Nubian kingdom, the, the kingdom of, of Candace or Kandaki, depending on what version of the Bible you have, that's where this guy's headed. That's where he's from. That's where he's headed. He went up to Jerusalem to worship. So now keep this in mind. Someone of this kind of political stature would have normally been deeply embedded in the religious practices of the kingdom that they were a part of. Uh, so, so for him to be in Israel, worshiping the God of the Hebrews is something that immediately makes the reader go, that's not what I was expecting. Uh, so he's an unlikely person in part because of the political uh, clout that he had. And he's wealthy, right? He's got a scroll of the book of Isaiah. We'll come back to why that's significant uh, in, in a moment. The second reason that this is an unlikely person is because he's a eunuch. Uh, so um, I won't go into all the details of what it means to be a eunuch. I'll let you all figure that out later, but I think most of you know what that means. Um, so in, in the ancient world itself, uh, Philo, who was a well-known author in the ancient world, said that eunuchs were neither male nor female. A uh, more modern author, I just finished reading this book by uh, uh, a theologian, uh, biblical scholar by the name of Patrick Schreiner, 
on the book of Acts. And he, there's a quote up there for you, he said, he said this in his book. He said, eunuchs were both prized and demonized. Demonized because of their sexual ambiguity and prized because of their, because of their trustworthiness. And in Israel, to have been a eunuch would have meant that there was only so far into the temple you could go. Uh, that, that someone couldn't become Jewish, go through the process of becoming Jewish, uh, if they were a eunuch. There was a barrier there for them. And so all of these obstacles are in the way, and, and what that does is that it makes it makes us understand just the degree to which this individual's sexual identity would have presented a barrier for him culturally, but even the significance of what is about to happen to him in the story. And so the first question that this story poses, we take a moment to sit in it and to be thinking about like, what's going on here, is that it challenges our conceptions of who's included in the kingdom of God, right? That, that if you're like me, we all have te- a tendency to say, oh yeah, I know, the gospel's for everybody, yes, but so-and-so is probably not going to believe, that type of person is probably not going to believe or have faith in Jesus Christ. And so this story really challenges that conception for us because it's, it shows us someone that, that for the original audience would have been a very unlikely individual is about to have a transformative experience with the gospel. The borders of Christianity are about to expand and they're about to include this man. Now, how does that happen? This is our second point. How, how does that transition occur? And it occurs, how is he brought into the kingdom of God? He's brought in through Jesus. He's brought in through the gospel, okay? So what's happening is that, um, you know, Philip is brought to this individual, um, and, and this guy is not only is he, uh, you know, what we would regard as a very unlikely person in a very unlikely place, he's doing a very unlikely thing, okay? What is he doing? You might ask my kids uh, a question about me. You say, how often does your dad read? And they would say, my dad reads all the time. In fact, uh, I often uh, will go back into the house because I forgot to grab a book when I'm going out somewhere. Even if I'm 99.9% sure that I'm not going to have time to read uh, wherever it is that I'm going, I always have a book with me because you just never know, right? Um, and, and if for some reason... Uh, I forgot a book. It's okay, because I can break out my phone, and on my Bible app, I have over a thousand books that I can immediately download and have access to. And so I'm always reading at least two ebooks because you just never know, right? We live in a world where we have ready-made access to books. That is not the world of the Ethiopian eunuch. A scroll let alone the scroll of Isaiah. The scroll of Isaiah would have been a big scroll, okay? Uh, It would have been very expensive. It would have been very valuable. Uh, In fact, as I was thinking about this passage, I I started thinking, and and I'm going to ask him this question one day. I was like, dude, what were you doing in the middle of the desert with that scroll? Uh, you know, I, I, the only thing I can think, and I don't know this, so don't quote me on this, but the only thing that I can think is that he was taking it back to the royal court. So for him to be there reading the scroll, 
Philip walks up, and he, and he probably would have been reading it out loud because that was the custom of the day. Um, so here's this, here's this powerful government official. He's literate. He has enough money to have access to a scroll. He has it with him on this desert road in the chariot. Uh, and don't think, don't think little, you know, like uh, those little Roman chariots, right? Uh, you know, those movies where they're like, ah, it's not that. We're, we're thinking more here like a wagon or a carriage, Right, something that could transport someone of high prominence and high power and influence uh, uh, semi-comfortably from Jerusalem to uh, to back to Ethiopia. Um, he's reading it out loud. Philip comes up, and immediately Philip knows what he's reading. He knows what he's reading. I'm going to read it to you in a second, and you'll and if you've grown up in the church, you'll go, "Oh yeah, that story, that passage. I know that passage." Right? It's a very well-known passage of scripture. And he's reading it, and he walks up, Philip walks up to this man, and he's like, do you know what you're reading? And he says, how on earth am I supposed to know what I'm reading unless somebody explains it to me? Philip's like, let me in. I'll explain it to you. And so Philip gets in the chariot, and they begin to have a conversation. They begin to talk about what's going on. So what's the passage? What is it that this guy was reading? Not Philippians, I'm sorry. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to take that word iniquity. I want you to pin it up here for me mentally. We're going to come back to that word in a minute. So the, 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 the part of what we read in Isaiah uh, is this idea of the need that you and I have. We have gone astray. We, we've deviated from the path that we were supposed to be on. That's the, that's the problem. That's the, the bad news, if you will. Then we go on, uh, understanding that that's a part of our spiritual condition, right? Then we move on to verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Do me a favor, take that word transgression and pin it right there next to the word iniquity for a moment. So this guy, this is, remember what he asked? Who is he talking about? This is the section he's probably reading. It's these verses. Who is this, who is this individual? Who is this man who willingly goes to die and doesn't make an issue of it? Who is, who is he talking about? What's Isaiah talking about when he's, when he's talking about this individual? Why would he do such a thing? Verse 12. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Do me a favor, take that word sin, pin it up there with iniquity and transgression. We'll look at it in a second. What makes it possible for, uh, for Philip, what makes it possible for this Ethiopian eunuch, what makes it possible for the Samaritans that we met last week, uh, what will make it possible for, for uh, in, the, in the following chapters of Acts, you're going to see Saul of Tarsus, who was killing Christians, who, who had made a sport of killing Christians, uh, Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, and then from there, just blows up, 
right? The, the number of people that are coming. What makes it possible for all of that to happen, right? It's the Jesus is this man. Jesus is the man who came and, and died as a sheep before shears of silent. I mean, do think of the story of Jesus' death. And that really, like, that really encapsulates and, and, ex- and expresses for us what it is that Jesus does. He's being falsely accused. He's being beaten up. He's being whipped. He's being crucified. And, and he is not using a lot of words. Like a sheep before shears of silent. That was Jesus. Why? So that those who had gone astray could be brought back. Now, what's fascinating to me about this, and and literally I saw this last night as I was reviewing the sermon. All of a sudden I was like, wait a minute. In Isaiah, the the Bible, the scripture is really, um, it's very nuanced. It is very nuanced. Probably most of us, many of us, if we've grown up in the church, uh, our conception of sin is breaking rules. Um, And that's a part of it. But when scripture talks about the human condition and when scripture talks about what is wrong with our world, uh, those three words, we're going to take those three words that we pinned, we're going to take them back. We're going to look at them now, okay? Uh, Those three words actually are super helpful because they don't mean exactly the same thing. There's nuance to those words and that nuance helps us to see just how robust an, an explanation of what the human condition is and the problem that Jesus came to make right is sin has to do with missing the mark. So the idea of sin, and this is probably the one that many of us are familiar with, again, if we've grown up in the church, it has to do with there being a target and and you don't hit the target. And so sin has to do with missing the mark. Transgression has to do with rebellion. Transgression is when we take things that are not ours and we misappropriate them. Iniquity has to do with twisting something. So we have something, and we use it for things that is not intended. All right? And so you take those three words together. There are a few places in Scripture. Isaiah 53 is one of them. I think Exodus 34 is another. Where those three words are all brought together, and they're, and they're playing out for us a robust understanding of what the problem is. Um, and, and so the, I stumbled on this last night as I was, I was reviewing my sermon, and then I came across this, uh, this quote that I had buried in a file somewhere. Uh, God's compassionate and merciful nature bears and forgives people. No, I'm sorry. Uh, no, God's compassionate and merciful nature bears with and forgives people's twisting his words and will, that's iniquity. It endures breaches of trust by, uh, by persons with whom he has had relationship, that's transgression, and suffers the missing of goals set for his people, that's sin. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what Jesus does. And this is what Philip is beginning to explain to this man. Esau McCulley is a uh, African-American theologian, Anglican pastor, wrote a book uh, last year, the year before, called Reading While Black. Great book. Um, And this is what he says about this particular passage. He says, this eunuch, as a despised thing, found hope in the shamed Messiah whose resurrection lifts those with imposed indignities to places of honor. How do we know that he was a shamed Messiah? Because he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. 
This is what Jesus does. He brings the most unlikely of people and he brings them into his kingdom. How do we know that? Because we're all sitting in this room right now and not out on the bay or, you know, getting, getting an early start to our, our, our uh, Super Bowl pregame. This is the good news that God is bringing people in. All right, so who is included in the expansion? The most unlikely of people the Ethiopian eunuch, but you and me. How are we included in this growing expansion? How are we brought into this new community, this new kingdom that God is doing uh, through, um, through, through Jesus' death on the cross? That's what this man was reading about, and that is what Philip, uh, Philip is talking about. So we have this unlikely person, this Ethiopian eunuch, in an unlikely place, a desert road on a, on a chariot, doing an unlikely thing, reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and the most logical thing happens next. The most likely thing happens next. What happens? He's baptized. When you have faith in Jesus, you get baptized. All right, so what happens? What, um, so what happens is that we don't know how long they're reading, we don't know how long they're studying, but at some point, the Ethiopian eunuchs is like, well, this is true, then I need to get baptized. How he even knew about baptism, I don't know. Probably Philip told him. But, but, but this is his natural response, okay? Now, um, I had this, I'm going to use it anyway. It's going to not be as, because we were supposed to baptize Jeremiah at this point. Um, so, so here's what baptism is, right? Baptism is a sign. There's so much we could say about baptism, but baptism is a sign, that points to spiritual realities. And one of the many spiritual realities that baptism points to is our union with Jesus. Okay, the, the theological term is called union with Christ. Uh, and if you look that up, there's so much like which beautiful stuff uh, written about what it means that you and I, through faith in Jesus, are made one with him. This is why, for example, uh, in Romans 6, we read, all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. And so when a child is baptized, we believe in, in, chi- in the baptism of children of believers, uh, when a child is baptized, what we are saying is that that sign of union with Christ, we are holding on to the promises of God that one day that union, that sign of the union will become reality when that child professes faith in Jesus Christ. And then when an adult is baptized who's already professed faith in Jesus Christ, we're saying we're holding on to the fact that God has promised that that sign of union has actually already taken place, right? The sign doesn't change when you get baptized. is just pointing to a different aspect of the sign, whether it's a future promise or a past reality. And so when this man gets baptized, do you know what's going on? So he's reading the scroll. He's reading the scroll. He's in Isaiah 53. So what comes after Isaiah 53? Isaiah 54. What comes after Isaiah 54? What comes after 55? 56. Do you know what it says in Isaiah 56? Would you like to know what it says in Isaiah 56? Of course you do. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. 
I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In a culture where having children was a symbol of honor, for a man who is incapable of having children to hear those words spoken over him would have been tremendous hope. Because what the gospel teaches is that his identity was no longer going to be found in being a eunuch. His identity was going to be found in this new name that was being given over him, the name of Jesus. Now, now, does Isaiah unpack all of that? No. But I guarantee you, with all of my heart, that by the time that man got to Ethiopia, he had read this. For all we know, Philip said, hey, by the way, let's go, let's read, let's scroll down a little bit long. I want to show you something here. So that he would have come to realize that his identity through faith in Jesus Christ and through the baptism that he underwent, that his identity had changed. Listen, I don't know about you, but I know myself. I know my own heart, and I know that I can really struggle with finding my identity in the wrong place. Amen? Right? Uh, we, we can struggle with finding our identity in, in past, uh, past sins, past experiences, past actions. Uh, we, can find, we, can, we, can, we can risk finding our identity in our present moments of failure. Uh, we, we even sometimes find our identities in our fears of the future. And at the risk of being simplistic, and I don't mean to be simplistic, I know that, I know that there's a lot more complexity to this. Um, but at the risk of being simplistic, our identity is not found in those things. As, as, as painful as they might be, as real as they might be, and I don't want to minimize that in any way, shape, or form, but the work of the gospel is the work of recognizing that our identity needs to not be found in those things, but our identity needs to be found in Christ. Now, don't you wish you knew what happened to this dude? Uh, So we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us, but tradition, church history, gives us a clue. A pastor by the name of Irenaeus writes this uh, about the Ethiopian eunuch. This man was also sent into the region of Ethiopia to preach what he himself believed and there was one God, and, and that there was one God preached by the prophets, but that the Son of this God had already made his appearance in human nature and had been led as a sheep to the slaughter. Um, every time I read the story, I, I can't help but think of the story of, of, uh, in the Old Testament of Naaman. And if you're familiar with that story, I'm just going to drop that little Easter egg for you to go find that on. But, but, but here's this, this rich, powerful man from another country who, who has an experience with the God of Israel. And then when he goes back to the place where he's from, uh, his life has changed. And that's what, that seems to be what happens to this man here. Uh, as, a, as a rich man, he, 
his wealth was now going to be brought under the lordship of Jesus. And that's the same for you and me. Right? Regardless of our socioeconomic standing, faith in Christ means that Jesus is Lord over how we see money. As a politician, right, his vocation was going to be brought under the lordship of Christ. And that's the same for us today. Regardless of our, of our, of our vocation, Jesus is king over that. As a eunuch, his sexual identity would have been brought under the lordship of Christ. And that is true for us today, regardless of what our sexual identity is. As, a, as, we, as we begin to think about the implications of this for us as a church, uh, my sense is, from everything that I've known and, and gotten to know you all as a church, um, is that, that we, we desire to be a place that sees the borders of Christianity continue to expand, that we desire and strive to be a place where others can come in and have an experience with this, this man who was led like a lamb to the slaughter before, you know, the sheep before shears is silent, that this is who he is. This is what Jesus Christ has done. But let's be honest, right? That kind of diversity is very difficult to maintain, it takes an incredible amount of humility on the part of everybody to be able to maintain that kind of, hum- of that kind of diversity, where you have people coming from very different places, um, and 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 we're experiencing that not in bad ways, but what we're experiencing that now, even even the subject of wearing masks, right, is 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 one where we have people with with convictions on either side. And we're trying to figure out how do we navigate this as a church in a way that loves everybody. Uh, and it's hard. And I'm not saying that to complain. I'm just naming reality, naming the reality that we all know is there, right? So, um, so, but, but that's just one aspect of it, right? There are other aspects of these tensions that we want to think through. And so, uh, so what we've, what about Kate and I, have been talking about and what we've been thinking about and praying about um, is that we, we want to start um, having conversations. Uh, and we're just going to invite anyone that wants to come to have conversations. And, and the, the thought that we're working on is this, and, and it's almost completely formulated, which is why I'm telling you about it. Um, we've already had a, a test case of it. Um, where we're going to invite you to read a book with us uh, and, and then get together, having read the book, get together, and just have a conversation. Uh, what are the implications of this book? What are the things that this book, where does it challenge us? What are the ideas challenge us or push us in different directions? Not in order to have a fight. I'm not interested in fights, right? But to have robust conversations so that we can all begin to think through what does it look like to be a church in San Diego in this particular moment in time. And so some of the topics that we're thinking about are politics. We don't need to talk about politics, right? Uh, midterm elections coming up. Race cultural diversity, vocation, sexual identity, secularism. Uh, and we've got a list of books that we're beginning to compile on each of those areas. And we're just going to say, hey, look, this month we're doing this. If you want to jump in, jump in. Great. Now, I want to be really clear. This is not a substitute for being in a life group. It is not a substitute for being in a Bible study. It is not a substitute for discipleship. Okay? 
but hopefully it will augment those things by creating other spaces where we can have these conversations. Um, so, so the gospel teaches us that the borders of Christianity grow and expand, and we want to be a church, right, that, that is positioned to be able to do that because we believe, first of all, you know, us, right, we're here. Um, we know what it's taken for us to believe, uh, and we know what it'll take for other people to believe, and we want to be positioned to be able to do that. Uh, so let's pray uh, and ask the Lord to bless us as we seek to be that kind of people, as we end our time in Acts and prepare for a season where we're going to, uh, in a couple weeks, we'll talk about what we're going to do with prayer. But, let, but let's pray right now. Father, we, uh, we come to the story, and uh, I am blown away um, because it, your, your love for people is so evident. And the way, that you, um, the way that you see your kingdom and work to see your kingdom expand to include whom we might, in certain respects, regard as the most unlikely of people. Uh, but when we stop and think about it, Lord, we recognize that we're just as unlikely. Uh, so, um, Lord, help us as a church to be the kind of place uh, where we hold things in tension, where we, uh, where we seek to grow the borders of the gospel, not by our own effort, Lord, because that's not going to get us anywhere. We know that, but because you're working through us. Um, and Lord, we pray that you would help us to do this for your glory, uh, for the proclamation of the name of Jesus. Uh, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.